0: And I can remember it as clear as day, and and I I don't know maybe it's so much not a piece of advice that I would tell you but maybe a a affirmation that what you did was the right thing. And I remember I remember thinking one day, you know, what's the next big thing? What is you know what's what's going to be what's what's going to happen? Because when I grew up, I was it's in the 70s, and if you remember the 70s.
1: Today on the show we've got Rob Rastwich, the CTO of ThinkLogic. Thanks for doing this.
0: Thanks for having me, Jess. I appreciate it.
1: You bet. So for people who don't know about ThinkLogics, can you can you explain what you guys do? We are
0: an IoT platform that basically provides a low-code, no code uh, mechanism to create IoT solutions.
1: So that's that's really what caught my idea my eye is the the low-code no code side of it. For people not as familiar with that movement, can you give people a little background?
0: Sure, sure. I mean, I probably the best way to explain it, I've always found, is if you're familiar with salesforce.com, salesforce.com is, you know, basically a website you log into and you can start building a CRM, right? So the idea around Salesforce was, and I'm sure Parker Harris and Mark Benioff, the two founders of Salesforce, were sitting around one day and going, look, I bet you there's a bunch of people out there building databases and they're making a contact table and they're making a accounts table and they're putting first name and last name and email address and phone number. And they say, Hey, why don't we just give that to them and, and have them stop doing all that. And they can, you know, focus on the part of the business that is, you know, different than everybody else. So Salesforce was really kind of the pioneer in that area to be able to build an application with clicks not code. We came from, I, I come from that, That ecosystem was a Salesforce developer for many years. So when we got the IoT bug about six or seven years ago, and we actually started a company called um, Telemetry Denver, and it was a bunch of us guys that were doing Salesforce consulting. We ended up, our goal was actually to sell this company to Salesforce to do IoT, right? Well, we ended up actually, long story short, we ended up selling that to Amazon, and that company is today what is most people know as the microservice of AWS IoT. ThingLogics was born out of that, right? We basically wanted to provide professional services around the IoT platform that we just sold to Amazon. And so, like I'm sure Parker Harrison and Benioff, we said everybody needs the same thing. They need you know, the ability to log in. They need user management and they need account management. They need contacts. They need security. They need, you know, all these things to provide a solution. So we said, why don't we just build it and give it to them and let them customize the rest of it. So we really built this around the idea that people are going to want to create message-based event-driven solutions. And the platform was, you know, kind of best practices around that so that you can easily do it and that it can scale. Because as you when you start talking about IoT, scale becomes a, a concern very very quickly.
1: So for people who maybe don't have as much of an IoT Internet of Things background, and they think you know maybe they've heard a few a few applications, but but not as familiar as you. What what really is the world of Internet of Things these days? What does that include?
0: Well, it's it is and you know after the pandemic. It really has gotten to be more and more. I always said we actually created a solution for a problem that people didn't know they had yet, but now it's becoming prevalent. But think about it around anything that needs to send a message. And the buzzword is IoT, Internet of Things. I like to think of it as Internet of Everything and everything being... I don't care if it's your computer, if it's you, because you send messages too, right? You have you have messages that you send and you text, but it's enabling conversations to take place. So the most simple example is your thermostat in your home, or there's a temperature sensor in your home, and it keeps saying the temperature is 76 degrees. It's 76 degrees. It's 76 degrees. And the only thing it knows how to say is it's 76 degrees. Well, that's it's enabled and we enable it to talk. And now we put a listener on that. So who wants to listen to the temperature sensor? Well, the thermostat wants to listen to the temperature sensor, right? So the temperature sensor says, I'm 76 degrees. The thermostat says, oh, how hot is it outside? It's 105 degrees outside. Okay, well, turn these down. So it's a coordination of these conversations, if you will. And we, you know, thought about them and we've done them, you know, kind of unconsciously between humans all the time, but it's Coordinating and putting logic around those conversations between devices or things that chirp.
1: So let's let's talk about some of the fun stuff from that world for a minute. Uh, I saw I saw a recent video on your YouTube about uh, the Boston Dynamics integration yeah. there at the watch. Can you tell people about that one?
0: So, yeah, that one is actually a, a very fun one. So Boston Dynamics came up with a Essentially their objective was to create a robot, if you will, that could go into diverse terrains. So a diverse terrain meaning go upstairs, climb over rock piles, you know, walk through water, you know, have the stability to to do those kinds of things. So a couple of MIT guys, they and I forget exactly where they were before that, but they came out and they developed this, they call it spot. And it's basically a. It looks like a dog, but it was just a kind of a <laughs> plain brown dog, <laughs> if you will. Right? It didn't do anything. So we partnered with them to actually start putting things, putting applications, and have the have the robot do things. So we came up with couple, several applications that are actually were you know they're demo wearish kind of things that we did, but they're pretty fun. So one the during the pandemic the the dog could Sense how close people were, right? So we would sense it, and so we would send the dog to go between two people and say, "You're not socially distanced enough." Right? It can scan things, so because you can put a scanner temperature on it, the dog can kind of walk out, can you know shine infrared light and get a temperature of you and check your body temperature and report that back. It can do you know the more kind of cool use cases are around you know safety and security where you can actually now send you know, enable the dog with sensors around air quality and water quality and send them into these very dangerous situations where there might be, you know, chemicals or, you know, in in terms of police and firework, they had some pretty cool use cases around that.
1: So we did that. And then we also did. um, When when did you start with them? Because, I I mean, I think a bunch of us have seen the like, you know, it's like the yellow square and then yellow shoulders, black legs, you know. So
0: and those are the ones we worked with,
1: yeah. Yeah, okay. How long ago did you guys start doing that with them? It started right at the pandemic, which right
0: before the pandemic. So it would have been I want to say the late 2019 is when we first uh, we first got our first dogs. I think the first two.
1: It's it's fun because I think it's funny because the way that, like it tilts like emotion.
0: <laughs> like, oh yeah,
1: it feels like it feels so different than your average robot because it has that kind of emotive type of reaction, right?
0: Well, and and that was one of, that's actually one of the interesting things about it is, you know, you can, how, obviously this is a robot that has no emotions at all, right? And you can, how you program it to, you know, tilt and look sad and tilt its head up and, you know, cower down and do all that. And it, you can actually, you know, emit the emotions from the robot. So it, it brings a nice, you know, I think a little moral debate around what has emotions. Do do things have emotions, especially around pets, right? Everybody believes their pet has emotions. Well, does the pet have emotions or is it us just projecting our emotions on there? I'm not going to debate those during a technology discussion, but it did. It, it, is, an interesting, it's, it is an interesting discussion. <clears throat> One of the other things that was really cool about it was because I'm also a rancher, we actually um, started down the process of, using the robots for, you know, plant recognition. We actually did, when I was doing it, I was actually growing um, industrial hemp and we were, we never finished the project, but we were outfitting it with a camera that could walk down the rows of, you know, row crops, be they hemp's or carrots or lettuce or whatever, you know, and do a photo recognition of the plant and determine like in hemp production, you can't have male plants in there because it'll destroy the whole crop. So you got to kill them as early as possible. So you could take a photo of it. The robot could recognize that it it's a uh,
1: GPS. G- yeah, and, it. yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> okay. So this is a total tangent, but I got super interested in hemp like 20 years ago when I found out that like the same acre of hemp that took 90 days to grow supposedly can create as much paper as the same acre of like 20 year old trees. Is that... does. Are those numbers way off? An acre of hemp and an acre
0: of twenty-year-old trees. Yeah, I I haven't heard that. It wouldn't surprise me because those hemp stocks. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're a hemp stock is is. I mean, it's as if it's wood. It's very very hard, and you know you're taking the limbs off of it when you when you harvest. But you can grow that. I mean, in where I'm in in Oregon our season is pretty short, but I, you know, we would start, we would, you typically plant by, you know, mid June and by September, you got eight foot tall trees. You know, I think it would be a stretch to say it was the same as 20 year old trees. Cause those are really tall. Yeah. Right. And so you get a little bit more, but it would probably come pretty close because that, you know, the stock comes off of it is pretty big.
1: Yeah. And the density you can grow, you know, it, it's interesting to me, like, all, hearing all the use cases for hemp. Like, I guess the cops in, in Vancouver, Canada, would go, like, feed hemp seed pollen into apartment buildings because it would kill the... Because they wanted it to cross-pollinate it with THC marijuana plants. To, oh, <laughs> so destroy the THC so D- the th- destroy the THC when they're, you know, back before <laughs> no, that I was all legalized. That. But, like, you know, it, it's interesting, like, the, the history... I know this is a total tangent. But the history of, like, you know, back... In the, I want to say the 20s, Ford made the, I believe it was Ford made the first plastic shell car out of hemp seed oil plastic. Because they were, like, they'd figured out strains that were, like, 50% 50 seed by weight, you know, and and can create the plastics out of the oil. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, you know, (laughs) pre-Dupont and nylon rope, basically all rope was hemp rope. You know, for well, and
0: I think you know, I'd even heard and I, didn't, I hadn't ever verified, but I didn't hear that most of World War II, you know, the you know, a lot of a lot of the parachute cords and those kinds of things were all made from industrial hemp.
1: Yeah, there's old like uh, propaganda about like please switch your crops to hemp, we need it for the war. Uh, yeah, I can't remember if that was World War One or World War Two, but you know, the other one that's fascinating to me is is lumber this idea of pressing, pressing hemp stocks. For, mm-hmm. To turn it into two by fours and, and mm-hmm. other manufactured wood. That's fascinating oh, to yeah. me when you look at areas that that don't grow trees naturally, you know, but but can grow other plants and the ability to grow hemp so fast. Yeah. And you know, you think about especially like underprivileged nations, like if they didn't have to deforest their their forests in order for to have building supplies, if they could grow hemp and press it fascinating oh sure that that's a really fascinating hack to me
0: and it's really you know that part of the hemp plant the stock and all of that is is really that has been the underutilized piece of it you know because everybody's after the the oil and the flour and stuff like that and you know i was trying to sell my stocks trying to find somebody to do it and it was hard to do right find to get to get something but there is so much potential in those stocks of what you could but there's just not the, they're not the processing plants around. I mean, there's not the, the growing it is one thing, but it's getting it, you know, processed and, you know, having the place to, to, you know, send it and make a little money off of it is the tough part. Because growing them, I think every, everybody will grow them if you give them, you know, you, any farmer will change his crop if he knows he has a contract to sell something. And that's a little easier to sell than, than something. But even more, I mean, we had a tough time Cause of the frost, the flowers, you know, we, we got hit with frost and it's, you know, it's never, I mean, I wish I could find something in this life that was easy to do, but it's never easy and it's always <laughs> a struggle, but, but I, I am a big, cause the other thing that's really cool is what it does to the soil, what growing hemp does to the soil. When you put a hemp crop in, it extracts all the junk that's in the soil out of there. And it makes it like when you do another crop the next year, much richer. Hmm. In fact, I I had read that somebody that they had around Chernobyl planted hemp things to help cleanse the soil because it pulls all that stuff out of the soil.
1: Wow. There's a uh, it's an amazing.
0: It's an ama- there's lots of amazing stories around that.
1: Yeah, it's a it, it is an interesting plant for the versatility of it, right? Yeah. Well, this this is an interesting combo to me. You know, I, we were talking before earlier I grew up in farm country and you know, my my grandpa and my relatives had, had cattle yeah. and farms and stuff like this. And so the, the I'm interested in in how you think any of that background has helped you as you've approached the tech world or like, does it give you a different oh, yeah. perspective on things or what, what does it make you think?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely does. I mean, you and, you know, I live, I actually live in Central Oregon, a little town called Bend, Oregon. My office, our company Thinglogics, is located in in the Bay Area. And, you know, I always say I'm a man with no country because I come to when I'm in central Oregon, the only people I know are ranchers, and you talk about IoT with them and they look like you have three heads. You go to the San Francisco in the Bay Area and you talk about, you know, you know, where where beef comes from and, and steers, and they look like well, it comes from the store, doesn't it? Well, but those two worlds do collide in a couple different ways because agriculture benefits most from IoT. So one of the things that one of the other proof of concepts I'm working on is a corral system that because all our cattle have RFID tags. And as they come in, you know, you want to be able to, you know, move the cows around to get the one that needs to go to market. Cause the one that goes to market today is the slowest one, right? <laughs> the one that you can catch. So that's the one that goes to market, but that's not the one that necessarily needs to go to market. The one that needs to go to market is the one that's heaviest and needs to have been here the longest and is the right weight. And as you keep all that data and have gates automatically open and closed to move cattle around, it's less stress on the cattle you know, it's safer for the, the handlers and whatnot. But also I think it, <clears throat> I like to think ranching and, and technology brings a little common sense to a technological world. I think especially IoT. IOT. I always say we've been in the basement of corporate America for the last 10, 15 years. We've been down with the engineers soldering, you know, boards together and turning lights on and making LEDs go and those kinds of things. And we're just now getting up into the C-suites where business is now looking at it and going, there actually is a business proposition here. But I think in the technology world, we always, they always you know, in, in farming, they say um, mother is necessity of invention, right? So you go to any ranch in this country and you will find inventions to do things that you couldn't even imagine. You didn't even know there was a problem and these ranchers are inventing things. On the technology side, I think we have, you know, invention is the mother of necessity. We invent something, we think this is really cool, we hand it over to marketing and go go make a need for this now, right? And and I think the best question always has people say, well, what's IoT? I go, well, IoT is when we, we're going to connect up your um, dishwasher, your washing machine. And the question, well, why do I want my washing machine connected up? You probably don't want your washing machine, but it's cool because we can connect up to the washing <laughs> machine, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> so exciting. it's like we, we, we kind of put the cart before the horse in there. So I actually try to bring a little bit of that. Practicality. Sense of real, uh, yeah, it's a real practicality. Just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing, right? And so we have a lot of our applications have been very practical. And I think we a couple of them that I think worth mentioning, we had Solar Panels, a company in Africa, that sell solar panels. They actually sold a, a an inexpensive module that had a solar panel. It had, I think, like a refrigerator, like a TV or a radio and an outlet to charge your cell phone. And they had a very low price point. And then we could monitor those and do predictive maintenance and really provide something that, you know, helps the quality of life um, of those uh, who receive it. We work with the the U.S. government, the USGS in monitoring we monitor the Grand Canyon, monitor volcanoes. What, what do you um, do right in we, the Grand Canyon? The Grand Canyon, we do the winds, wind, wind monitoring, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it's there's a there's a sand migration when when the water when when the water comes down and the winds are blowing there's a somehow this sand moves from one side to the other and they monitor that and I'm not exactly I'm not a, a geologist obviously. We've also started monitoring rivers with them and not just in the you know, putting water sensors in the rivers, but we put cameras in a fixed location and then created algorithms to, from the pictures of the camera, being able to tell how much water flow, the more ubiquitous that that could become has huge implications. I mean, even right now here in on my ranch, the water, our irrigation water, here it is the, what is it, 22nd of June and our irrigation water has been turned off. You know, the farmlands are going to go dry because we're in a drought, right? And it's not that there's no water, it's just the water is in the wrong spot, <laughs> right? And it's hard to manage. There's not a water grid the way that there is like an electrical grid where you can move, you can buy and sell water, and you can make a free market for our
1: electricity. Tell you,
0: that doesn't exist.
1: There's a business we need to get into cost effective oh. desalinization. And create oh a water God. grid and just pump and it dis- into the and ocean, right? Distribution
0: of water. I mean, to me, that is to, to me that is the business that you know. And you see, you, you know, uh, you start uh, you research around, and there's a lot of a lot of heavy hitters that are buying up farmland around the country, and it's a it's a big deal. but being able to monitor and manage that that water flow, I think, is really the next big thing. Especially not just, I mean. I don't care what side of climate change you're on; it doesn't really matter. The fact that water is a required and necessary resource, we have the technology to be able to manage that and move it and 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 measure it, and but it just hasn't been implemented. We just have not. I mean, water still comes down a ditch, still flows down a river, which. We also want to, right, for ecosystems and rec-
1: recreation.
0: You're, you're, you talk about divergence. You can tip me on the water. You're going to get me on the water so you can all talk
1: all day. day. <laughs> well, let's do this. I know we're kind of winding up for part one of the interview. I got a whole bunch more questions for you for part two. Sure. But maybe, maybe a place to end here is what's a piece of advice you'd go back and give a younger version of yourself? <laughs> you could. <laughs>
0: Get off the farm, stop farming. <laughs> Stay in technology. That's funny because I think that's a good question. And I never thought about that. I, I I guess I would have to say I had and I can remember it as clear as day. And and I I don't know if maybe it's so much not a piece of advice that I would tell him, but maybe a a affirmation that what you did was the right thing. And I remember I remember thinking one day, you know what's the next big thing? What is, you know, what's, what's going to be, what's, what's going to happen? Because when I grew up, I was, it's in the seventies. And if you remember the seventies and the eighties, in the seventies, we had a very similar situation. You know, inflation was going up. We had the gas crisis, you know, that was just, it was a very, you know, the Vietnam war had just ended. People weren't, were very unsettled. And I remember thinking, you know, my parents were very conservative, always, you know, work for the government, work on the farm, don't take too many chances, be be careful. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to give it a try. I don't know, whatever it is, I'm going to give it a try. Now, on the one side of that equation, I mean, I lived through the dot-com boom, made and lost money during the dot-com boom, made and lost money during the real estate boom, made and I'm making lose money during the IoT boom. But I always thought, you know, I want to give it just to try it because I don't want to be sitting on my porch when I'm 90 and go, gosh, I wish I had tried. I wish I had just given it a shot. I don't want to be sitting and going to, you know, regret. I may be poor and I may be broken. I may have nothing when I'm on my porch in 90, but what I won't have is the ability. I won't have the regret of going, I didn't, I didn't try. So that's the one thing I would say I, I would affirm my younger self is I'm glad you did that. I'm glad that you you started taking a few of these chances and and seeing where you go because it's 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 made life not only enjoyable but very you know it's never dull for sure.
1: No, that's so meaningful. I I really appreciate that. You know, I think in the last handful of years before we got our our Grace investments, our real estate fund up and going. You know, I I was you know running a couple other businesses and helping friends with their businesses and making yeah. good money, but like. I wasn't, I just knew I wasn't really reaching my potential. And like, there's so much Mm -hmm. I want to do with our charity, Child Rescue. And I just wasn't doing the kind of things that I was going to have the millions extra I needed for what I want to do there. And it was like, there's this book I read all the time because I have too much ADD. It's called, (laughs) it's called The One Thing by Gary Keller. Okay. And there's this line in it, opens one of the chapters and he says something about like, we're kept from the best things in life, not by things that are bad, but by an easier path to lesser things. Mm. And I just realized like, I've got these like, these friends with these great businesses doing tens of millions of dollars and they call me up, they want help on this. It makes me feel important and it's cool and and stuff. But I wasn't building one of those businesses. And so I was never going to be able to afford to do child rescue. And I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to do, like I think about, my usefulness to society and like my primary goal is usefulness to my family. Like, do I help my, you know, am I a good husband? Yeah. Do I help my kids really become equipped to to make the correct choices in life that are going to lead to happiness, right? And then besides yeah. that, like, what's my biggest value to society? And it's not like having enough money to buy a new snowmobile and and take Fridays off to go snowmobile snowboarding, which I do love, but that's not that big of a benefit to society. Like it doesn't really right, matter right. that I was on earth because I got to go snowboarding more. Right. 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 <laughs> and, and like, it was this thing that really, it was this kick in the butt of like, man, I need, I need to get out and try again, you know, and maybe, yep. maybe I'll never be one of these billionaires and able to give all the money I want to, to charity. But I certainly am not by making good money and going dirt biking and making yeah. good money and skating the skateboard rep. you know, like, right, right, um, right. I'm so excited. We finally, my 14 year old finally got our half pipe put back together in the backyard in their shed. Society, not that big of a yeah. benefit to society. Right. 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 So, yeah. anyways, <laughs> I just, I felt like that was a very meaningful response. So, I appreciate that. Well, no,
0: no I, you know, and you said something there that, you know, it reminded me. I don't, I don't know if you ever remember Harry Chapin. He was a, he was a folk singer in the, in the 70s. Cats in the Cradle was his big, yeah. his, was his big son. But anyway, he always said something. He said, you know, he was talking about his, I think his grandfather, who was an um, illustrator, and he says, I have I have I have lived my life, you know, and I wish I'd been more successful. I wish I had done more things. I wish I had been better. But at the end of the day, you know, I had fought my battles. I had, you know, chosen my wars. And at the end of the day, I'm good tired. I can lay down and just say, take me away because it was it was my it was my battles and my 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 challenges and my, I wasn't fighting somebody else's battles. I wasn't fighting somebody else's challenges. I did them for mine. And if I do that for me and in the contribution, you know, to society, which I think I think is the most fulfilling thing that you can do is, yes, your my my family always comes first. But you're always making a contribution to somebody else. And I have we do we do youth retreats for underprivileged um, oh, high school really? kids. We do. Yeah. We take them out in the woods and we do ropes challenge courses with them, you know, to keep, to basically get them to the point where you can, in a very small setting, say, look, here is an impossible thing that's before you. And you, when you walk to it, you say, this is an impossible thing. I could never climb that. I could never swing on this. I could never do this thing. And then you do this thing. And then you say, how many of those things are in your life that you do every day? What are the impossible things that, you aren't impossible, and you can make that contribution. So I really appreciate, you know, your response on that as well. So, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what any of this has to do with IoT, but it's yeah, very, I it really all, enjoy to it.
1: <laughs> me it all gets together though because you think about taking that chance. Because in, in the second half, I really want to talk about, you know, building something so good that Amazon wants it from you, and you guys are AWS partners now. I understand, and I want to yeah. talk about this kind of stuff. But I think that these elements actually really matter. You know, like if yeah, you man. build a selfish company you don't end up with a lot of customers. If you don't right. have the guts, if you don't have the guts to fail, you yeah. you really don't have a chance at winning. You know, like yeah. even like little example, ropes courses, you know, I got to go to one at Cornell University my friend Travis put on. And it was so tough. I remember climbing to the top of this telephone pole and yeah. the thing yeah. is like, I don't know, six. Yeah. I had to jump off of it. Yeah. Well, it was like the jumping off is one thing, but the it was only like Getting six up, or yeah. seven inches around. Yeah. And Like the, the handholds were just these tiny little things. And so like figuring out how to get up on it, it didn't seem that bad when I was on the ground. And when you're up there, you're like, wow, how do I hold on with two hands, get one foot on and then make enough room for the other foot while trying to stand up. And And it starts to wobble. Yeah, it starts to wobble. (laughs) And you're like a telephone pole, a big, tall telephone pole up in the air, you know? And then it was like this like impossible jump to this like trapeze thing to try to grab onto. You know, and it's yeah. like, and the thing's are slightly wobbly. You know, yeah. And it's like, it's it's this idea of like going for it, anyways. You know, yeah. even even though it's not a guarantee you're going to make it. And I think yeah. all that stuff adds up.
0: We have we we have one of those at our course. We oh call yeah, it the leap of faith. Yeah, it's called the leap. We call it the leap of faith. But there are kids that they, you know they come in all shapes and sizes, and there's just some kids, and we always tell them like, you may not be able to go to the top, but there are some of the kids that get on there. And they get just halfway up the pole and they come down and they are so stoked because when they were on the ground, they didn't believe they could get that far up, you know, it's just being able to push that limit. And then there's the guys that you're right. But once you get up there, it's just it's it doesn't it's never as easy as it looks from sitting down here for sure. You know, and there's just so many lessons in there that you take. You know, then you go back and you start talking and and that's when things really start clicking with these kids is they start going, I get it. I kind of, at least I could, I could practice it a little bit, you know, anyway. (laughs) That's very
1: cool. Okay. Everybody tune back into part two. I got a whole bunch more questions for Rob. Thanks for doing this. (laughs)